Hi, Cassie. Hello there. And um, hopefully everyone can hear me. I'm going to assume you can. And um, yeah, I'm really sorry that I can't be there in person. I um, tested positive for COVID yesterday, um, but I'm hoping my COVID brain gets me through uh, this next 50 minutes. Um, yeah, so I'm actually going to start to share some slides straight away. Um, so bear with me whilst I just do that. And hopefully people can see. And I'm going to turn my video off and turn it into a slideshow. Um, so yeah, thank you for accommodating me like this um, at such short notice. I'd like a future better than the present. And I spend a lot of time contemplating what I'm paying attention to now and asking questions about what is needed and how I pay attention and to whom. Our collective futures are deeply connected to what we pay attention to and what we don't. And there are million pound industries deeply committed to distracting us from the crises we are in. So I'm going to share about three areas where I'm currently putting my attention in terms of my work and practices. And in my mind, they are practices of systemic transitions, which for me is about this question. How do we take the systems we have at the moment that are failing us and try to shift them to new patterns that are fit for the future? This work can often feel like being in the entanglement of the what is and the what might be. And before I actually talk about the practices um, that I'm particularly focused on at the moment, I'm actually gonna just start by introducing three frameworks that I use that help me ask questions about what role to play in change at this time, where to put my energy and my resources. And apologies to anyone that already is very familiar with these frameworks. So the first one um, is the two loop model, which I've been using since 2010 and always found helpful in bringing intention to the role that I'm playing in systemic transitions. It was created by the Bacana Institute, and this is my iteration of it. And of course, there are things that could be added to it, and I keep meaning to do a refresh version. In essence, it shows a dominant system that is dying and an emergent system that has the potential to become the system of influence. As the dominant system reaches its peak, new pioneers emerge, recognizing that the dominant system is beginning to decline. Stabilizing at the top of the image is about steadying and maintaining the vital things that we need, like the NHS in the UK and certain government departments. People need to have access to basic services, whatever is happening around them. Another role is helping people and organizations transition, which you can see sort of in the middle of the diagram. Um, and this is transitioning from the current dominant system into the new system. I think a lot of this work as the people that are doing handholding, walking alongside organizations across the transition bridge, some make it and others don't. One of the many challenges of this type of work is that what 
making sure that what you're doing in the long run doesn't just end up as optimizing the existing system. Solely making things better in the present won't help you get over the bridge. And when you start the transition of something, you need to keep asking if it is being underpinned with new logics and whether you're taking from the old to the new, something that can actually be evolved to fit the new paradigm. Another role in change work is that done by the pioneers down and sort of across on the left-hand side of the diagram. These are the people and organizations building alternatives, creating entirely new entities that aren't reliant on the old system's way of doing things. They are underpinned with a new set of values and models, and they understand that they need to operate from within an entirely new paradigm. At the moment, a lot of this kind of work is happening at the edges or in different forms like movements that people feel it's easy to write off as momentary, but I believe they're laying the foundations of something important and truly alternative, a patterning of hope. These people are showing us what an alternative looks like and saying, this is how things need to be. They have vision, tenacity, persistence, belief, boldness, and imagine trying to do something that is not only new in terms of its setup, but new in terms of where the wider world's level of understanding is in relation to it. Another important role in change is those people that are illuminating, connecting together and nurturing these new alternatives. They help the emergent ideas, projects and organisations grow more coherence as a field. And as the dominant system starts to decline, the hospice worker role, right in the middle of the diagram, that provides care and compassion for those organisations that are no longer needed or no longer fit for the future. For me, this is the role that is least tended to, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. The next diagram and framework I use is the Three Horizons model. And this I find useful for tuning in to where and what to pay attention to as someone who's trying to resource a new system to grow. Horizon one is a dominant pattern of activity, often known as business as usual. You'll hear people saying, this is the way things are done around here. Whatever the sector or context, there's always a business as usual dominant pattern. And often if you stand in that place and anticipate the future potential, you can see how many of the business as usual systems are going to fail. They are under increasing pressure, beginning to show signs of strain, and they're under pressure because the world is changing. If you're seeing things through a third horizon lens, you know that these patterns are failing and why. You can also see a future in which a very different pattern can emerge. This is the, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day the world will be very different and the third horizon pattern is gonna grow and become more dominant. And importantly, you can already see the third horizon patterns in the present. In the second horizon, in between the two, there's a rise and fall of a pattern of innovation. Here, though, a second here through a second horizon lens, you can sense all kinds of possibilities, not looking to the distant future, but knowing in this moment there could be all kinds of novel things that might work or that might shift the system. Those three lenses or perspectives are three different patterns of activity. And the interaction between them are present all of the time. 
And it's how they weave together and play out against each other over time that creates the future. The last framework is the power shift framework, which I use as a way of assessing initiatives that I think hold the potential for being funded. I believe systemic transitions only happen if we are working at all four of these levels, the landscape, the regime, the niche, and at the soil and roots. And because I believe that systemic transitions only happen if we're working at all of these levels, I particularly champion initiatives that are engaging with all four layers of this diagram and people and initiatives that are engaging in the full complexity of the challenges we face. So that's the two loops that I use to hone in on what role I might want to play in change. The three horizons as a way of noticing patterns that start to point towards an emerging future and the power shift framework as a way of checking in on the level of complexity that initiatives are engaging with. And of course, there are other models and frameworks, and of course, none of them are perfect, but I find the combination of these very helpful. The what is. And I think of this as the work of hospicing. So part of the two loop model, it's an inevitable part of systemic transitions, but one that has very little attention paid to it. There's always something growing and something declining at the same time. I am both living and dying at the same time. And I love this quote, you know, we do need to pay attention to endings as much as beginnings. Hospice work for the dying culture as much as midwifery for the new. And having previously done work as a designer with the NHS and with hospices, looking at things like end of life care, I know how culturally in the UK, we find death and dying difficult to face up to and to talk about. And I've used a lot of analogies and practices from those contexts where I've previously worked from hospices, from palliative care, from grief therapy, and applied them to this work. And I should say that other people have been and are thinking about this too, from Joe McLeod and his work on ENDS. I think he's based in Sweden. Maybe he's even there. Um, Laura Bunt and Charlie Ledbetter in their Art of Exit work and Vanessa Reed and her Conscious Closures TEDx talk, which I'd really recommend. But unlike these pieces of work, I started out thinking about this, focusing solely on civil society and at an organisational level. Another reason it's important to be more prepared for and consider organizational endings is because so much is changing all of the time, whether it's more pandemics, the power of AI and the power of big tech and the climate crisis and what that requires of us all. And these changing contexts are going to change more often and more dramatically. I think of this work partly as preparedness for all that's to come. And we're already finding new rituals and ways to cope with loss in our cultures and societies. This is the 2019 funeral for the first glacier in Iceland to be lost to climate breakdown. And endings and closures can be harmful, extractive, callous, opaque, inconsiderate, and there are many other words I could say. And this can cause all kinds of fallout 
So another reason I believe this work is important for systemic transitions is considering it as making good compost. Composting improves soil, it provides nutrients, it stimulates the ecosystem, it builds health. And if we don't consider organisational endings, we, leave, we lose the chance to leave things in a better way than when we found them. And we don't consider what would make better compost. So we started stewarding loss in 2019. And in this initial phase of work, we interviewed all kinds of people and practitioners, death doulas, ritual designers, end of life care practitioners. We set up loss circles and we started supporting several organisations to close down. We also created two different toolkits, which is what you can see on the screen. One that was for those who needed timely practical help to close down quite imminently, and one that was to encourage the questions around loss to seep into organisational strategy over time. Are we still relevant? Do we really want to exist in perpetuity? And I don't have time now to go into all the tools and resources, but I'll just give you a flavor of, of one set. Um, this is like one of the canvases that we created um, with some of the considerations for closing down. One part is the story. So what are your aspirations for this ending? What is the narrative you want to build and spread about this ending? Who do you need to communicate that change is coming to? And how will you ensure organisational justice where nobody is left picking up the pieces or holding on to untruths? The relationships, which are so important in endings. Who needs to be involved now and in what way and at what stage? Who do you want to invite into the process of dying or dismantling? And who do you want to invite in as a witness of the process? Artefacts, which are really useful as a journey unfolds to have something that can be created beyond the life of the organization. So what kinds of artifacts can you create? A book, a series of events, a ritual for the whole ecology of which you're a part. A living network can also be an artifact. Can you imagine how the organization will live on as a network of people and relationships? And is this something you want to cultivate? and archiving, collective archiving as a participatory process. And then rituals. Can you imagine where and when rituals might be important or helpful in the inquiring and the journey? What rituals might help people absorb what is happening and changing? And what rituals might help people prepare for loss and for endings? And some of what we've learned is that this is so much about language and framing. So instead of some of the ways we might think about describing it, actually talking about it being about moving out of the way and making way for the new, divesting in the status quo, finishing on a high, clearing space and reframing from it's a failure to it's an act of generosity. It's not shameful, it's courageous. It's not giving up, it's creating new life. And it's not a waste. It's actually an opportunity to distribute wisdom elsewhere. And so after, over the last few years, the work has grown thanks to Iona Lawrence and Louise Armstrong, who are my colleagues at Stewarding Loss. And they've expanded the work to be more about to be about more than just organizational endings. 
Since 2009, Stewarding Loss has supported over 100 organisations now to explore and design possible endings, from organisational closures to the end of founding leadership tenures. And Louise and Iona are setting up the decelerator this autumn. And they describe it, or their framing is, you know, take a moment to think about the accelerators, the funding schemes, the leadership programmes that help new ideas, leaders and organisations to emerge and how little equivalent infrastructure exists to support the hospicing or transitioning out of old ideas, organisations or leaders and the start of the next chapter. And we also run a community of practice, a monthly meetup for people developing these practices for transitions. And we're really interested to help grow new practices for this work, believing that it's going to only increase in terms of it, the need for it, the demand for it. And then lastly, we in 2020, we also prototyped a farewell fund. So this was exploring whether there was a way to incentivize civil society organizations to die. It didn't really work at that time, and I haven't got time to go into why now, but it's something we are reworking because some things do need to die and are really getting in the way of alternative futures emerging. This is a time to divest in the status quo and to refresh the soil. And that leads me on to another area of my work where I'm paying a lot of attention. And I won't spend as much time here because I know you've already heard from people like Dan talking about imagination on the previous panel and some other great speakers coming up. But of course, if the pattern that is failing us because it's not going to support us is in decline, then we need to find new patterns, the pattern we need to grow and support for the kind of life we want in the future. And so I'll start with these two quotes. This first I love because I think the idea of radical tenderness is really important for stewarding and growing alternative futures. And the second, because it's a reminder of how difficult we all can find it to dream, or at least to articulate our dreams. And so this all started for me in the spring of 2019 whilst working at the National Lottery Community Fund. For their 25th birthday, I was encouraging them to do a mass dreaming experiment. And the idea landed in a different way in the early days of the pandemic when we set up a funding program explicitly inviting communities across the UK to collectively imagine new futures as a result of the crisis. We were asking the question, who gets to imagine? And how do we grow the capacity of communities to imagine differently? We funded 52 places across the UK in 2020, new constellations of which this picture is one of their photos, was a great example. They brought together a really diverse group in the community of Barrow through multiple channels of engagement, a hotline number, a series of billboards, posters all over the town in bus stops, corner shops, adverts on the local radio station and so forth. And people applied to become part of the new constellations journey. And they went through an immersive collective imagination process over a series of weeks and months during that first phase of the pandemic. The council in Barrow, who was one of the partners, used the ideas from that 
from that group and from that process to inform the council's future strategy and the spend of a capital fund from the government. And across these 52 grants, and as the work has developed since, there are all kinds of skills and the materials that we see people bringing to this work. So working with time, with ancestors and future generations, working with embodied and somatic practices, working with civic and social infrastructures, using space and creative immersive environments or practice labs, working with the more than human world and with the land, and working with myths and histories of place. And what we know this work isn't, this collective imagining of what else is possible. It isn't just taking some art materials into a community space and sitting together with the question of what's our shared vision of the future. There are practices and skills involved in this work. And at the time, and as this work has grown, we've been trying to explore more about what is it about collective imagination that has felt different from maybe different, maybe more upstream than some of the other um, work that I think is complementary. It is related to, but distinct from complementary ideas and approaches such as futures and foresight work, which focuses more on scanning the horizon of what is already coming rather than creating the conditions to imagine and construct new alternative futures or narrative work which shapes our understanding of the world but does not necessarily open the door to radically reimagining it, and deliberative democracy which enables people to come together to collectively decide upon the future but does not in and of itself require that future to be different. And since then we've set up a yearly event called Imagination Infrastructures, a website with a number of resources I think Deb Chatra is one of your speakers and she spoke at the first one a couple of years ago. We were really lucky to have her talking about infrastructure. Um, and there's also lots of resources on there like a collective imagination playbook. And more recently, we've set up a collective imagination practitioners fund. So we're really growing a community of practice around this work, linking up with like artists, culture makers, other people who wouldn't necessarily call their practice collective imagination and we've we've created an accompanying fund as well and I guess we're doing all of this because we're trying to grow the capacity of people and places to imagine very different futures and it has been amazing over the last few years to see this work grow and all the different practices that now exist people talk about the civic imagination or the ecological imagination, and you can see um, some of those there. And so on to my final bit. Um, so I've talked about the what is and, and the what might be, and then I guess the what happens in between. And, you know, there is an urgent task to grow new patterns that will support all life on this planet, but how does it get resourced? And at the moment, I spend a lot of my time um, actually working in philanthropy, funding and wealth redistribution. And I do this because I'm deeply concerned that too many resources are still going into patterning the current system, that they're propping up the status quo. And I'm also really interested in this idea of the great wealth transfer. So over the next 20 years, a minimum of $35 trillion and up to 70 
trillion in wealth will transfer from the post-World War II generation to the next younger generation. And that's, so this, this huge amount of intergenerational wealth over the next two decades. And how do we ensure that that moves out of private wealth hoarding and into public goods, into the commons, into reparations, into patterning these new and different futures that we need. And so that's what a lot of my work is now about. Um, from Stuart Candy, who some of you know, um, also trying to encourage people with resources to think longer term, to develop what Stuart calls these wiser, more far-sighted and systemically literate habits of mind. And that's quite a leap with a lot of the funding community. So really, this work for me is about trying to get more resources into the list on the right, into these new patterns, the new soils, which is where a lot of the imagination work sits, into work that's propositional, not just the oppositional. We need the oppositional work. We need people to haste, like to quicken up bringing down some of these old systems that are no longer working. But I'm particularly interested in how we resource these new alternatives, these demonstrators, um, and help orient and signal more people towards them. Wow. Thank you, Cassie. I don't know if you can hear the audience, but it's, we are very enthusiastic uh, in this room. I'm going to open for questions from the room. Uh, and while you think in a panic, uh, I will ask some questions to get us started. Uh, if you're still good to continue, Cassie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm good. In the, I mean, I have so many thoughts and I will try. And I also struggle now to make questions out of these, but I'll, I'll try a question in case you need reminding often has a question mark, typically always has a question mark at the end. Um, so one thing that I'm, I'm really uh, impressed by is these tools to, to help think about the future. I'm, I'm turning this way because the camera is here in, in case you wonder. Uh, so uh, looking at the diagram, I'm thinking, where would we fit? Where would I fit? Where would each of us fit? Oh, am I a stabilizer or am I a pioneer? That's actually a super helpful question to ask oneself. Which level am I in the landscape, in the regime, in the niche, in the soil and root? Not every one of us has to do all the things on all the levels. So my question is, do you have any recommendations for starting to think about where each of us belongs there? Um, I mean, I think... I think that's a really personal journey and set of questions that probably everyone will consider. And I would imagine that many things come into play when different people are thinking about that. They might already be working in an existing institution. Like I think my friend Finn is somewhere in the audience because he messaged me thinking he might see me. And Finn used to do a lot, I don't know if he still is, but he used to do a lot of work with cities and local government. And I guess, if you're already working in an existing institution, unless the whole institution is um, ready to radically change, you're very likely to be playing that role of transition, like the kind of holding hands, trying to move this large bureaucracy 
into being more future focused and, and future fit. Um, but people have different life responsibilities, different things that will constrain them in their lives that make some of the some of the roles different or difficult, different economic situations that we're in. So I think it's just it needs to sit with like your own values, the kind of person you are, the level of um, risk that you feel able to take or that your situation or context allows. And, and then also like who your networks are, where your positionality can be most useful and those kinds of questions. Thank you. Then I was also fascinated, and I, I think we all uh, were, I think, from the breathing in the room, um, of, of this idea of hospicing change, that, that for new things to emerge, some old things need to go. And I think, I think a lot of, most of us probably work in the private sector, but I know a lot of us also work in the public sector here. And in both of those contexts, we have built a lot of structures that are about maintaining things like even even structures that are good and helpful may also be in the way of, of other structures right and i do know especially in the business context we do talk about making an exit but then of course that is a word that means taking the money and running and taking zero responsibility typically for what happens after and this is the opposite of that and i'm fascinated that in work life uh, employment and uh, departments are closed, bankruptcies happen with zero thought to any of anything that, you, that you've been talking about. There is a nightmare version of this where this language is used to placate people in crisis, but no actual change is happening. Let's not do that. Uh, but do you think, I mean, I, it feels so radical. Is it, is, are these tools that we can start using in our companies today? What if I look at my company and feel like, wow, I shouldn't be like this company shouldn't be around anymore. We need to start about start like start working towards the actual exit. How do we do that? Should we do that? I mean, I think it's interesting to. I think there is actually probably quite a big difference in some ways between how this work lands in the private sector compared to civil society. I don't know if civil society has the same meaning in, in Sweden, um, because I guess in the private sector, the main thing that will be driving whether something should exist still or not is, are we making profit? Um, so, so in some ways, it's actually more straightforward. I feel like I'm not saying the private sector always deals with endings well but i think there's not the same layers of complexity about should we exist or not because at some level it does come down to like the balance sheet whereas i think in the not-for-profit world and civil society that it's just there's a lot more complexity to it partly because that there's a lot of reliance on grant funding as well which obviously is driven by those working in philanthropy and those that hold resources. So it's kind of really tied in with all of that, which is probably why that's been much more my focus. Um, but I think even in the private sector, I think there's probably still questions around perpetuity. Like should, should we live, should we exist forever? Do we want endless growth? And obviously there's growing um, community in Europe around, say, the Beyond Growth movement. Um, and I think that really ties into these questions as well. 
Thanks. I mean, again, there are some interesting questions about like a, 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 like a mid-sized company that, that is really struggling because of some kind of transformation. Instead of saying, let's kill ourselves trying to make this work and it probably won't, there is like a path that I have genuinely never occurred to me before today, which is uh, this is probably not going to work in the long run. So how do we make like a, a good landing for us as an organization, our stakeholders, our employees, uh, our owners, and so on? Like that's a completely new idea for me. Okay, so I'm mind blown. Clearly, I need questions from you uh, instead. Who would like to begin? There's a question right there. Uh, do we have we have runners? Uh, you keep, please keep waving, big wave, big wave right there, uh, there, and then everybody can see, and keep waving, please, and then so that the, the mic can be passed on to the person that I'm pointing at. Okay, we have a mic here, no? I don't know where the mic is, because I can't currently see the room. We have a mic over there, great. Success, I have a mic. Okay, let's ask Thank a question you. there, and then we go to the front row, yes. Uh, thank you, Kezi, for a really uh, thought-provoking talk. I work in higher education, and I would love to hear your thoughts on reimagining higher education, what we need to hospice, maybe, in higher education, and if you have any interesting examples from higher education that you've uh, heard about. Great. Um, I, fi I find education and health the two hardest areas. They're probably the two areas I have done least work in, so I'm just putting that out there. Um, I mean, in a, in a UK context, there's so much that needs to be hospiced, in my view, from our education system. Firstly, I mean, private, private education should be abolished, hospice, straight away. That's just my view. Um, but yeah, just the... Um, constant exam like I, I think we've just got education really wrong the way we think of it is just being contained within school you know like we are lifelong learners and how do we instill that all the way throughout people's lives um yeah the exam system what we think young people need to and should be learning now there's just so much that feels um the constant pressure the low wages of teachers my all my family are teachers so um yeah i think we should hospice their paychecks and reimagine some new ones for them <laughs> um, i think the one initiative that comes to mind um that i think is doing really interesting reimagining here in the uk is something called rekindle school uh, run by an amazing woman called Ruth. Um, but I would say it feels like one of the hardest systems to shift because it's huge and and I think it I think it it's got that kind of I think it feels very stuck and entrenched and, and maybe with a new government that might also release some sense of like new possibilities but certainly in at the moment with our current government it it feels like it, a place where no one's really believing anything different is possible um so it's not a very hopeful thing to end on but rekindle school maybe that that's a seed of something that can grow also, what I'm hearing you say, of course, is that this is a space where those transformational elements and the grass transformational experiments and the grassroots work can really make a difference by just demonstrating different futures. Let's go to the front row. Hi. Yes, please. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sakira, and I work in uh, management transformation, generally in the private sector and in the U.S. And I really, really, really loved what you were saying about hospice work, um, because I see so many companies um, just offshoring um, employees 
And it's, it's really, um, I always find myself in a moral dilemma between like, I, I need this contract, I have to make money. And I really don't believe in this. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm wondering if you have any experience pitching that to companies that generally take no accountability. Mm. And then on the other end, for an employee whose life is caught up in employment, is there any incentive for them to be a part of that breaking down process, to be a part of that creating the compost? Um, because if your life is caught up in it, maybe you just, the minute you, you catch wind that the company might be going down, it's time for you to jump ship. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you have any experience speaking about that. Um, thank you. Probably not, I don't directly, but I think that, I, I think one of the kind of communities of practice I see emerging that probably address, I think there's lots of interesting kind of innovations happening around like worker movements. Um, so I'm on the board of something called Organize, uh, which is based in the UK, but is already growing into the US. And they, they, they're a platform and they've created all kinds of tools and ways for workers to organize um, in response to kind of injustices, poor conditions, um, and like a lot of in the US where like Amazon workers and, you know, so I think in a way for me, like the energy that sits in some of those movements is is probably the energy that will help um, bring things down, dismantle, and then hospice. Um, I'm not sure what, what good compost looks like in those contexts. Um, but yeah, I think some of the innovations happening around like worker um, there's another thing called Break Room in the UK um, and a whole programme that the Resolution Foundation in the UK has been funding looking at um, workers. So on the employer side, though, I mean, it felt like that was a two-sided question. What's the, what is the, um, what's the incentive for, for the company to, to put some effort into doing this accountably, would you say? Well, I think... Um, I, I think it's tricky because probably there's a bit of me that's not sure how accountable some of those big companies will ever feel whilst they feel like there's plenty of other workers available. Um, but something like Breakroom is a way for um, workers to kind of rate them as employees. So I guess on some level, if they really started to care about whether they can attract workers. And actually, if I think about it in the UK, because of Brexit, we are seeing some challenges in our workforce. So maybe companies will start to care more about how they're considered. Are they, are they a caring, compassionate employer, even if they have zero hour contracts as most of their, um, most of their employment? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. so it feels like there's a category of company that's going to be very difficult, but there's also probably categories of companies that are not intentionally evil, where there might be space also to, to go in there. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I, I think there is. Uh, we have time for at least one more. How are we? On, there's one right here. Uh, can we get a microphone over there? Please keep waving here in the middle. Yes, what's moving? Wave, wave, keep waving they don't, so they know what they're aiming for. The microphone is moving through the room. I'm narrating for Cassie. Yes, there we go. Hello, um, I'm Calvin. Uh, I've been working for 
about a decade in big media institutions like The Guardian and New York Times and so on, telling them that a lot of what they do is actually going into hospice, but still to this day, there's no real agreement. Like uh, a lot of um, journalists still think that they're gonna be publishing new newspaper websites to 20 year olds. Um, and I think, so I think at least in, in that business, there's um, a big challenge with just getting people to realize that they are, what they do is going into hospice. And, and, and then, then it's really hard to, to make good exits um, do you see that generally um, as a challenge? Yes, definitely. And um, since in the last sort of few months, we've we're actually writing a book. Um, there's a small group of us that's sort of pulling all of the stewarding loss stuff together into a book. So we've been thinking about slightly different categories of um, potential, like people that would be interested in, and a really big one are those in like where where industries are clearly in decline and and dying but the people working in them are in complete denial and how to bring it more into people's awareness and i don't think i haven't got like a list of answers for that now but i guess that's where i think like considering what are the incentives then and that's like when we were doing the farewell fund um, that was really to see whether if you created the right invitation, would some organisations step forward and, and say, like, you know what, it is time for us to close and we've been avoiding it or denying it. But this incentive has feels like it's something we can now do. Um, and we've been thinking about what that might look like in governments where you've got like where you've got programmes or services that need decommissioning. Um, and how you can incentivize that through resourcing, putting more resource into the new ideas. That sounds a bit vague, but I think I think the the kind of numbness and denial that is everywhere in our culture it really links to this um, where whole industries are in decline, but nobody really wants to face up to that. Cassie, we've been talking today a little bit uh, about middle class uh, fears or like middle, middle class fragility, I think would be the t correct term to be real. And I, I, that connects a little bit to what you're saying. Uh, for instance, journalist is not just a job to most journalists. I think it's a very strong personal identity. And that the, so it's not emotionally strange that, that one would be in denial about about that whole thing being threatened. I don't think they feel like they're any less of a journalist than they were 10 years ago, and then how can it not be? How can the reality around them have shifted? And I think a lot of jobs, uh, especially, or a lot of people uh, with professional jobs also now are are having that fear because of AI, that suddenly my programming job or my, my junior lawyer job might be automated away, and then who am I if that's not my identity? Do you have some thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I just... Yeah, I, th I think that there's almost a role, like in, in the stewarding loss work, one of, there's a whole set of tools just around the roles that you need to um, support people through these transitions. And I think, yeah, some, some of this work is very emotional and psychological. And um, for the first time ever, I saw a council in the UK recently advertise for a job for someone to to come and work with the council 
um, which is based in an industrialised area in the UK where the industry is dying. And the person's role was there purely to focus on the, the people's needs in place. Like, how do you support people to find other work? Mm. How do you support people to uh, cope with a shifting identity? Um, so I think there's, you know, like I think that there's a lot of practice and skill around just supporting that aspect of endings. But I also think there is some of this, there is in it, an inevitability to a lot of this too and even those of us that might currently feel very comfortable um or that this isn't going to come near like the 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 climate everything that's going to happen in this poly crisis world i think many of us will be needing to shift our identities to change our behaviors to live quite differently from how we're living now so there's going to be an enormous amount of loss and grief um I I think, Thank and but I believe we can really like equip ourselves for that and prepare for that and be together in that. Thank you, thank you, Cassie, so much. And stewarding loss is the resource. I think where we'll all start learning more about this, dear friends, Cassie Robinson. Thank you for having me.